Uh, we just got back from Israel. It was a wonderful trip. Um, we didn't expect all these things, uh, but it was an interesting week. First of all, we had um, Holocaust. Hey, it's my turn now. We had, we had Holocaust Memorial uh, in Israel, which is uh, fascinating because the remembrance of, of the six million Jews, over six million Jews that were killed in the Nazi death camps in Israel, uh, the siren sounds, uh, it's the air raid sirens, and the entire nation stops. Everybody gets out of their car and complete silence over the entire nation, deeply moving. Um, and also during that time, we had what they call Israeli snow. There were 600 missiles that were fired while we were there from the Gaza Strip. Very thrilling. <laughs> um, and then they had uh, Memorial Day um, in Israel for all in the IDF, the Israeli Defense Force, who've been killed in the protection of this 71-year-old nation. Um, and each town does a memorial service for their fallen. We were special guests of... No, not, not, yeah, Nadav is our guide, but it was, I was thinking of the town. Um, Nenaretzet Zion, which is a, a city just outside of Jerusalem, uh, about 40,000 people. And the mayor invited us, and we got to participate in the memorial service. Though it was all in Hebrew, it was deeply moving. Um, they would light a candle for each of the citizens of that city who have died in defense of the nation. And suffice it to say, in that little city, there were uh, the entire front of the amphitheater was just aglow a with candles. A um, lot of tears. Family members would come forward to light the candles. Um, and then, then the sirens sounded again, and everyone stood, and the entire nation was silent. And then following that was uh, Israeli Independence Day. And uh, they say that, well, I'm sorry? Yeah. I'm sorry, you want the microphone? I don't know what we're talking about. Okay. Uh, I know where I'm going, just I'll get there. Um, so on Israeli Independence Day, uh, they, they go from mourning to celebrating. It's kind of bipolar. And, and they all start cheering, and the whole place erupts in, in you know, celebration. And that goes on through the week. Uh, and we were up on Masada, uh, which was basically Masada is the Alamo of Israel. It was the last piece of ground that the Israelis, the Israelites held uh, in freedom before the Romans just annihilated them. And it was Titus Vespasian who destroyed the temple in 70 AD. And these folks that were trying to hold on to Israeli independence uh, left into three strongholds that were built by Herod, and they were all in the desert, uh, Herodian, um, um, Malchaeus, and, and Masada. Um, and then the other two fell, and Masada was the last ground that they held, and then the Romans built a rampart. And instead of being enslaved by the Romans, they killed one another, and the last man who drew straws killed himself. And they actually found the pieces that they had... Um, decided who would be that person because in the Jewish faith to take your life is not good. But it was an act of service in that sense. We had uh, a guide we'd never had before. His name was Nadav. Uh, wonderful. He was a conservative Jew, uh, not Orthodox or Reformed. And he had served in the IDF. He was actually, there was a chance he would have been called up if, the, if, if there had been an intifada with the rockets coming in from Gaza. Um, it was just a remarkable trip. Uh, we were deeply touched. And I sat down with our old guide, Yuval, and also Nadav, and we scheduled a really wonderful trip 
we're going to do a smaller one in 2020, but in 2021, we're going to do something really spectacular. Uh, And I'll tell you more about that later, but it's going to be May of 2021. If you start saving 25 bucks a week, just don't do your latte every day. You'll be able to go to Israel. Latte, Israel. Latte, Israel. Who wants a latte? I do. I'm really tired right now. I mean... So, folks, it's, it's within reach, and uh, you do that, and you'll be able to go. Um, and I'll share more about that later, but I wanted to get into the Mother's Day message. And it's, um, it's interesting because I struggle over whether or not to do topical message on Mother's Day or to stay in the text on Mother's Day. And the Lord allowed it to be both. And um, I, I was, I, this is a, the preparation was um, so intense in that the Lord had really placed this on my heart in a specific way uh, of all uh, of all characters to try to develop a Mother's Day message on. And it, it, it wasn't that hard um, as the Lord had put something on my mind. But the, the topic of the text is John the Baptist. How do you do a Mother's Day service with John the Baptist? We will. You'll see. It'll work out. So uh, with that, uh, the last service laughed at that. And you guys are really making me nervous. Luke, Luke chapter 7. We're going to be studying that this morning. Luke chapter 7. And so if you have a Bible, open up to Luke 7. If you don't, the folks walking down the aisle will give you one. Just raise your hand and they'll give that to you. Luke chapter 7. In a moment, we'll stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. But I wanted to kind of set a context so that you'll all understand where we're going with this. Uh, I know Mother's Day is difficult for a number of folks, and uh, as I've shared in the past, my Christian faith was um, greatly strengthened, and in many cases defined by three childless uh, widows. Um, They had an enormous role in my my formation of my my calling, and I was grateful for each and every one of them. And I, I know that they would often comment how difficult Mother's Day was for them, and I think too, um... Whether we've lost our mother or we've lost a a loved one, however that works, it it tends to be a difficult, difficult day. Most folks just uh, want to avoid it, uh, and I understand that. Um, I remember the the first year that my mom had passed, how difficult that was. And and I I understand this can be a trying day for many. But in regards to the text, I really uh, feel as though God has uh, kind of a balm of Gilead, uh, comfort for the body of Christ, and mothers in particular. Because we're going to see in this text of men born of women, there's none greater than John the Baptist. And when I thought of that term, men born of women, we're all born of women. And, and as a result, the idea is, <clears throat> what about this man's life makes it so significant? And then it goes on to conclude the passage that we'll read momentarily, that wisdom, wisdom is, is proven by her children this text is inundated with this idea of mothering, and, and I think God has a deep and profound lesson for us. At least he did for me, and I pray for you as well. Um, and so with that, we're going to start in verse 18. So if you'd stand for the reading of the word of the Lord, I'll read out loud if you'll follow along silently. Now Jesus has healed the centurion servant. He's also uh, raised the widow named son from the dead, and now his renown is gathering and uh, John the Baptist, who baptized Jesus early on in the text that we read, it says in John 3.30, John said, I must decrease and Christ must increase. And that's happening. His disciples have peeled off. They started to follow Jesus. John doesn't have anyone really following him, save but for a handful of folks. And at this point, he's imprisoned. He's, um, 
He's in the Macaris prison, which is currently located in Jordan. I'll show you momentarily. And he's been there for 10 months. And um, he is struggling. He's really struggling. And he comes to a crisis of faith. And we'll take a look at it here. Verse 18. Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? They were faithful to, to carry the question in an inaccuracy. And that very hour, Jesus cured many of infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then here's a beatitude. And blessed is he who is not offended because of me. We'll cover that momentarily. When the messengers of John had departed, so they're no longer able to hear what Jesus is about to say. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes. I say to you, and more than a prophet, this is he of whom it is written, and he quotes from Malachi chapter 3, Behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. And when all the people heard Jesus, even the tax collectors justified God, having been, excuse me, when all the people heard John, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another, saying, We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. And we mourned to you, and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine, and you say he has a demon. The Son of Man has come eating and drinking, and you say, Look, a glutton and a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. That'll be our text. Let me pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. And God, we ask that you would lead us through this text as we take a look at the life of this prophet who is the greatest of all of them. We ask, Lord, that you would minister to our hearts. And I pray, Lord, by the profound nature of your word and the way in which it touches the deepest corners of our soul, I ask that you would use your word today to bring healing, blessing, and strength. God, I thank you that you don't get mad when we doubt you or we question you. And Lord, what a merciful and gracious God you are. But candidly, Lord, just like John, who you have esteemed and declared to be great among prophets, we struggle sometimes, God. We really do. And it's hard to figure you out. And so, Lord, I pray that you'd minister to us through this, this amazing life of John's. Bless your people now, Lord, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, have a seat. So we visited uh, 
we visited Masada, which is in the lowest point on the earth. Um, the Dead Sea is, I think, 700 meters below sea level. And um, you can be out in uh, the Dead Sea, uh, be as you know, white as a snowflake, and not have you know, a shirt on, and you won't get burned over a period of time, you will. But because of the extra layers of atmosphere, the ultraviolet rays, so folks that have eczema or some sort of skin disease have the chance to be in the sunlight without getting burned. It's a fascinating place to be, and the curative nature of the Dead Sea is amazing. Uh, we actually enjoyed floating in it. Some didn't because they got it in their eyes. But anyways, neither here nor there. Uh, and we, we had a great time. But there in that region, at this low point on the earth, is a place called Masada. It was built by Herod, who was an amazing builder. He's the one who built the temple that was destroyed by uh, Titus Vespasian in 70 AD. And you look at some of the stones uh, that, that went to the base of the temple. And we had a chance to go through the tunnel of the Western Wall and to see the work that he had done. And you're, you're witnessing this. So he would build these, they were kind of like uh, Montana compounds, that when everything goes bad, you're going to bug out to Montana in your compound with your canned goods and your AR-15. This was, uh, not that we're going to do that, but this is the area that, that he would build these things. And he had three fortresses that he built out in this wilderness, which is, like, again, a generous way of saying desert. He built Masada uh, on one of these, these uh, plateaus out in this, this desert region. He also had Herodian, and he also had uh, Herodium, and he also had um, uh, Micaeus. And Micaeus is um, where they kept John the Baptist in prison. And the reason why John was imprisoned in Micaeus is because he was the one who baptized Jesus in the Jordan. And where we did our baptisms is up near uh, the Sea of Galilee, and it's beautiful water, and it's clear, and you can see this, the fish swimming. Uh, and if you put your feet in, you get exfoliated as a little you know, perch, nibble on your dead skin, on your heel. It's just it's wonderful, just delightful. People pay big money for it. We got it for free. And so you, you get that in there, and they're swimming there. But if you go to where John did the baptisms, it's all the way down in the Dead Sea region in this desert area, and it's dry, it's hot, and he lived out there. He was an Essene. He, he lived with these nomadic folks out in the, in the desert. He wore camel hair, uh, camel skin. He ate locusts and ate honey. And he was just an odd dude. He was actually related to Jesus. Uh, Elizabeth and, and Zechariah were his parents. Born, uh, John was born to them in their, in their old age. And Elizabeth was related to Mary. And actually, when John the Baptist was in Elizabeth's womb, uh, John leapt when Mary came into contact as she was pregnant with Jesus. And John was, you know, turning in the womb there. And it's a fascinating picture of these, these relatives and the call where John the Baptist is coming in the spirit of Elijah to make straight the way of the Lord. He would be the one who would declare that the Messiah has arrived, and then Jesus would then come. And the Gospels begin with the baptism of Jesus, and John is out in the wilderness, and he's doing what's called a baptism of repentance. He's calling all the folks to come and turn from their wicked ways, turn from the things that displease God, and go into the water being cleansed and coming up and saying, I want to live in accordance with God and his statutes, and I want this infusion of moral uh, law back into my life. And, and these people are coming from all over Israel to be baptized out in the desert. They're traveling at great expense to themselves. And these, these elite folks within Jerusalem and the other parts of the, of the nation are traveling out themselves to come because they want to see why all these people are coming out there. So you have the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the Sanhedrin, and they're all gathering, witnessing from a distance all these people being baptized by John in a baptism of repentance. 
But the, the tax collectors and the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, they don't want anything to do with it. And, and, and John actually calls them a brood of vipers. This guy's intense. And he's kind of made enemies with the elite, and he's speaking truth to power. And what really puts him in trouble and gets him into prison is that he has the audacity to say to Herod and Philip the Tetrarch, and also to Herodias, who is uh, Herod's wife, he says, you are sleeping with your brother's wife. And that's immoral, and you can't do that. And he's declaring it. He's actually calling a politician immoral who is immoral, and he's declaring it to all the people. And so they they shut down his, his Twitter account and his Instagram, and they... Just saying. And, they, and they, they put him in prison. Well, he's in prison in this fortress um, in Micaeus. And Micaeus is located, I, I can't use the pointer because it gets, but you can see over here this purple circle. That's Masada. And over on the top up there is another purple circle that says Micaeus. Do you see that? And this is Herodian. This is the other fortress. So he has three fortresses in the wilderness surrounding the Dead Sea. And the reason why we, as a group, didn't visit uh, Macaris is because it's in Jordan and we wanted to live. <laughs> on this side is Israel, on that side is Macaris, that's Jordan. And, and fascinatingly enough, it is a very interesting and it is a, an area of antiquity. Um, but Macaris fell and so did Herodian. Uh, both of those fell, but Masada was the last to fall. And it was Titus Vespasian who ended up building the rampart to take down Masada. And that was the last handful of Jewish rebels that held on to that state. And they didn't become a nation again until 1948. And that's what we celebrated uh, this past week, the 71-year anniversary of being a state again. This is a picture of Macaris uh, from the east. And you can see it's much like Masada. And you can see the rampart that the Romans built to try to conquer it. In 72, uh, Roman general Lucilius Bassus, the new Roman legate of Judea, uh, first took Herodium and then besieged Macaris. And what's fascinating about Macaris, and you can kind of see how it's laid out, it's very similar to Masada. Uh, And and Herod was a phenomenal builder, and he would get water to these locations by the rain coming down from the higher mountains down these wadis, and it would flood into these aqueducts and would push the water into their cisterns, and then they'd have mules uh, beasts of burden take it up into their cisterns higher, and they were able to have these lush palaces in the middle of the desert, like a Palm Springs oasis, and enjoy the arid climate um, in, in the spring like we did. It was beautiful weather. And so he builds these, but what happened with Macaris is um, it was ultimately destroyed, and it was, it was being conquered by this man, but unlike Masada, everyone killed each other, and then the last person took his life but on Macaris, they all decided to surrender, and they got approval from the general that they would be able to live. And so they surrendered and were, were given permission to go and just be amongst the, 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 the city below. And as soon as they surrendered, went into the city, he sent the legions in to go kill them all. Uh, that's how the Romans were. If you rebelled, you're dead. And so this is Macaris. This is where John is being held because he was in the wilderness, and they pulled him into this area. And he's down in a dark, damp, miserable dungeon And he's been there now by the writing of Luke chapter 7. He's been there 10 months, 10 months. Now, the reason why that's significant that he's been there for 10 months is because he basically, I imagine, when he spoke truth to power, he probably thought to himself, you know, the Messiah happens to be my cousin. And uh, you're sleeping with your, your brother's wife, Herod, and that's wrong, and I'm calling you out on it. And go ahead, have your way, do what you're gonna do, But you imprison me, and you're going to open up a can of Jesus you won't get the lid on. Because he's going to come, and he's going to deliver me. 
And you'll, you'll be sorry. If there was ever a time in the history of the world where God was present to be able to help, first of all, he's related to him. Secondly, he lives in the same town. You know, third, he's God and he's walking the earth. And, uh, you know, I'm, I'm the spirit of Elijah. I'm making way straight the way of the Lord. And so, you know, he's, you'll see. Oh, you'll see. And one day of imprisonment turns into seven days, and that week then turns into a month, and one month into two, two into three, three into four, and he's languishing. It's miserable, it's hot, it's awful, and he is completely miserable. And it's at the darkest moment in his life where this now takes place. And what's interesting to me in regards to how John was feeling is the fact that he gets to a place where he asks the remaining disciples he has. He says to these two disciples, would you go and ask him if he's the Messiah? Will you go and ask him if he's the anointed one or the coming one or that we should look for another? Now, let me just put this into perspective for you. John was baptizing. Jesus approaches. He sees Jesus coming and he says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He comes, he says, I am not fit to baptize you. I'm not even fit to untie your sandals. And Jesus says that all righteousness would be fulfilled. You baptize me, John. He says, so be it. And he baptizes him. And the minute he baptizes him, he brings him up. And all the disciples of John are witnessing this. He brings him up out of the water. The heavens open. A dove descends, or the Spirit of the Lord descends in the form of a dove. And then the Father speaks and says, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now, if I witness that, I'm in. I'm good to go. I just heard God's voice. I saw the dove, and it's like, ha, and we're good. Everybody with me? And now spend 10 months in Macaris, and now you're doubting it. He's having a crisis of faith. He's really struggling over this. You know, really? I mean, in Daniel... And, 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 and John, being born to Zacharias and to Elizabeth, he was going to be the next high priest. This guy was on a fast track to the priesthood. He, he had a life waiting for him. He gave that up to pursue God and to be obedient to God. He's in the desert. He's eating locusts and honey and wearing camel hair. And now he's in prison for doing what he's called to do, speaking truth to power. It's one thing to be in a prison because of something that you've done. And I think we all can find something that we're be in prison for. Oh, good. All right. Amen. <laughs> Two of us. Amen. The rest of you are liars. But he's in prison for doing something right. And, he, and, and doing something right and, and, and doing what God asked of you. Raise a child in the way that they should go that when they're old, they won't depart thereof. And God, I did everything you asked me to do. Now you've got me in this, this prison of, of, of brokenness and heartache. It's just awful. Where are you? I mean, for Daniel, you, you, you brought a hand to scrape into the wall. There wasn't even a body attached to it, and it was floating. It said, mene, mene, teka, farsin. You've been waiting the balance and found wanting. And you use that for Daniel. Later on, you, you, you'd, you'd send an angel to break the shackles off of Peter, so he'd just walk out of the prison. Can't you do something? I'm making straight the way of the Lord. I've been obedient to you. You're related to me. You're walking on the earth. You're in the same town. If ever in the history of the world God could move on my behalf, why not now? And a day turns into a week, a week into a month, a month into ten. And he's struggling. 
He turns to the last two guys that are probably bringing him food, these two disciples. He says, would you do me a favor and go ask him. Ask him if he is the coming one or I'm supposed to look for another because I am really struggling right now. And they do. They're faithful. They actually take the exact thing that John said and they, they recount it to Jesus. When they came to Jesus, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you saying, are you the coming one or do we look for another? And they're faithful. They deliver the message. Jesus answers the first of the two questions. He answers the first one with a wordless action-oriented answer. He doesn't say anything. He just walks up to the, the deaf person and now they can hear. He raises a dead person here. He delivers a demon here. This, you know, he's, he's, just, he's curing and healing and touching and all these infirmities and these afflictions and these evil spirits and the blind are now given sight. And they're watching this. These two disciples are watching this. And personally, I think for many of us, the story of the two disciples is interesting because they get to witness Jesus' ministry and John's ministry. And they're going to make really good ministers. I was sharing with uh, Pastor John, who's getting ready in this venture of faith to go to Camarillo to, to start a church. I didn't get a chance to hear his message, but it was recounted to me, and it wasn't online, so I didn't get a chance to let's do it in Israel. But in that picture, John was, was candid in saying, I believe he was candid in saying, this is an act of faith. This is the hardest thing I've ever done. And I, I did turn to him in the first service. I said, John, that this is going to be simple in time to come because the strength of a minister is going to be through the testing you're going to endure. And this is the tip of the iceberg. I don't want to discourage him. But the folks who are really gleaning in the story, they're two disciples because they're watching what happens when you speak truth to power. They're watching when you make a decision in life that puts you in a, in a predicament. The Apostle Paul said, if there be no resurrection, I'd be of all men most pity because of the direction God took him. And to rely and to wait on God is one of the most difficult things. But what God does is that patience and that perseverance creates this character that causes you to be somebody of substance that folks would actually want to listen to you. You'd actually have something to say. Because we're all struggling. We're all going through trials. And it's those moments that you call, have you been through this? Yes, and they can help guide you through that. And I think these two disciples are witnessing this in Jesus' life and also in John's. And as they give this, this question to Jesus, Jesus answers again with that wordless action-oriented answer by healing all these people. But then he answers them with words, and he says this, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel preached to them. And then he adds this last one, And blessed, which is part of the Beatitudes on the Sermon on the Mount, Oh, how happy, blessed, is the mer- blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy. Uh, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Uh, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. This is another, oh, how happy. You want to be happy? Here's how it works. Blessed is the one who is not offended because of me. What I love about it is, nowhere in there does Jesus dump on them for doubting. I, I don't know about you, but I've had questions for God. I know you have. What am I saying? I know you've had questions. I know you've struggled over the way he's operated in your life? I know I have. I know in those seasons that I'm going through that, I'm thinking to myself, okay, what is the point of this? 
And you know, honestly, like Mother Teresa would say, God, if this is the way you treat your friends, it's a wonder you have any. And I, and I don't mean that disrespectfully, and God doesn't take it. He knows my heart. My ways are not your ways. They're higher than yours. You don't understand the beginning from the end and all points in between. And you know, I've, I've heard that quoted. I've heard it said. But it's not until you've been through that hell that you start to realize, okay, I got two options here. I either trust you even though I don't understand you or I'm offended by you and I walk away. Those are the two options. But what I love about the Lord is every time I've come to him with questions, and John actually did the best thing you can do when you're going through trials of doubt. John did the best thing you can do when you're going through trials of doubt. And here's what John did. He took his questions to Jesus. And he said, what do we got here? And Jesus responds by saying, blessed is he who is not offended because of me. And I love this because John never got that statement. John was dead before his disciples arrived. I don't know if that's how they killed him, but that's a depiction. And here's another one. Because Salome, um, Herodias' daughter, had a, a dance for Herod. Herod got drunk. And you know, Herod actually liked John. Herod really liked John. And he didn't want to put him in prison, but Herodias, his wife was so insulted. How dare you call me immoral? Who are you to judge me? And, and, and John speaks truth to power, and Herodias says, put him in jail. Put him in prison. And he's languishing in prison, and while he's languishing there in prison, and he's praying to God, Herodias' daughter, Salome, and we know her name Salome from Josephus, a historian, Salome starts to do the seductive dance for Herod. And Herod's had a little bit of wine. He's been drinking. And he's with all of his buddies. And they're having a party. And Salome. And he's drinking. And he just says. Whatever you want up to half my kingdom. She's like. It's sick. Yes I understand. The whole family's just. They put the fun in dysfunction. And he's, he's messed up. And he says to her in front of all of his buddies, up to half my kingdom. And she's been whispered to by Herodian. And, 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 he, and she says, I want the head of John the Baptist on a platter. He, he's taken aback. He's like, really? And all the guys are like, yeah! And he's spineless. He's spineless. You know, in the text where it says, what did you come out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? John has a spine. Herod, you don't. John's not moved by the power you think you possess. But Herod, you are. You have all the power, and you're powerless. You're, you're moved by everyone's opinion. You, put your, your, you lick your finger and put it in the air and see where the wind's blowing, decide what you're going to think that day. You just go along to get along. You don't want any conflict. You won't face anything. You won't stand for anything. And they're all laughing at him. And he says, let it be so. And while John is down in prison praying, and he's just saying, God, where are you? God, where are you? And he sends his disciples, and they're hurrying back to get word to him. And even if they had gotten back, this is what they'd say. Yeah, uh, you know the questions you asked. Well, basically, he healed a few people, and he said, don't be offended because of him, I think is what he said. 
And here, here's the part that gets me. In the passage of Scripture in Matthew chapter 4, you don't have to turn there, I'll just share with you. It says, now when Jesus heard that John had been put in prison. So back in chapter 4 of Matthew, Jesus hears that John's been put in prison. And you know what he does? He departed to Galilee. He moved. His disciples said, did you go and find John? Well, you know, he moved. He moved? Yeah, he's no longer in the, the town you live in or he lived in. He's living somewhere else. He's in Capernaum. He's abandoned me. And all this happens, and it's intense. John's waiting for word, and his disciples never even make it back. He's beheaded. This is a Rubens painting. And as I've, I've shared in the past, this, this picture to me of John crying out to God, where are you, a crisis of faith, struggling over this. He's praying, and as, and as he hears steps coming down into the dungeon, he's thinking, they're here, they've arrived, I have answer. It's only the Roman guards manhandling him, dragging him up, putting his head down on the stump, and the axe coming down. He exhales his, his last breath on earth and then inhales his first breath in heaven. What's amazing about that <clears throat> is that inhaling his first breath in heaven, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord. Now, I, I can't defend this theologically, and I imagine there's a number of theologians who would really take me to task. But we live on the earth, which is bound by time. And in heaven, everything's eternal. And if my name is written in the Lamb's book of life, and he has been placed in the Father's hand, no man can remove... When my mom passed and my dad passed and our two babies passed, when they got there, I'm already there. I know that sounds trippy. You can deal with it later. But the fascinating thing to me is when John inhaled his first breath in heaven, he was murdered by Herod and then Caiaphas would be responsible for the murder of Jesus. And all of a sudden he's there with the Lord. He didn't have to wait the so many months until Jesus would be murdered. They're, they're together. Absent from the body, present with the Lord where all things are made known. There's no sadness, no weeping, no sorrow. And all of a sudden, it's just this reunion. There are times in the course of our life where we really struggle with God. You know, I, I didn't like that my wife almost died. I didn't like that we lost two babies. I didn't like it when my mom died of cancer. I didn't like it when my dad got Alzheimer's. I didn't like it when my daughter went off the reservation for almost two years. I didn't like seeing pictures of her and all the horrible things. I remember the part where we, we were doing what was right and almost seemed like God just didn't care. Natasha had called and asked for money. And anyone who knows me knows giving money isn't, isn't hard for me. And I, I don't say that to toot my horn. It's just, it, it's just I'm wired that way. It's not, and don't ask me after service. I'm, I don't have any. <laughs> but that's just not a struggle for me. And, and she called and she asked for money. And God was so clear. No. That's really hard for me. 
But to give money would have addressed the symptom, not the problem. And God was saying, no, don't give her anything. Don't do it. And, and to give her money means that her phone would stay connected and she would be connected through the money and I'd be able to stay in contact with her and know, at least hear her voice and periodically she'd call. But not to give her money means her phone goes dead and she gets angry and she walks away. And I said, no. And her phone went dead and she was nowhere to be found. I didn't know where she was living. Michelle and I, we had sleepless nights. We, we just didn't know. I, honestly, I thought the next call would be the coroner. I, I seriously, with all my heart, I believed that. Crying out to the Lord and just thinking, Lord, why did you say no? At least I, I know where she'd be. I had, I had doubts. I took those questions to the Lord. I labored with him. I felt a little bit of betrayal. Certainly felt loss. There was a brokenness in all of that. And in the midst of it, just thinking, wow. And that's why this, this beatitude hits me. You see, in verse 23, it's this beatitude, a, 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 a way of being, blessed. Oh, how happy is he who is not offended because of me. And the word offended in the Greek is, it's fascinating. It's scandalon, where you get scandalized. But it, it, it goes deeper in the Greek. It means, it's kind of, I have to do this correctly, it's the part of the trap that the bait is attached to when you're trying to catch an animal. So if you have the, the box and then you put the stick and you wait for the rabbit to come in and eats it and pulls it and then the box closes. It's the part of the trap that the, the bait is attached to. And blesses he who doesn't take the bait. What's the bait? God has abandoned you. He doesn't care about you. He doesn't know what he's doing. There's no hope in this situation. He's, he's mean. He doesn't care. You're just nibbling the bait till the trap falls. And the enemy comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. And Jesus says, you're happy if you don't take the bait. There's no other way to describe this. It's not going to make sense. John, I don't know what else to tell you. It doesn't mean you can't doubt me. It doesn't mean you can't question me. It doesn't mean you can't struggle with these things. But it means by faith you must trust him when you can't see how it's all going to turn out. The problem for us is we get stuck in the horizontal problems of life. We get stuck in the horizontal and we make judgments on the vertical. Really? Obviously you don't care. We get stuck here and we, we judge him there. We can't do that. And the thing that blesses me about this passage is the minute that he gives this beatitude, blessed is he who is not offended because of me, they hear that and they leave because it says when the messengers of John had departed 
And I love this because everyone listening, save but the two disciples who are now out of earshot, everyone's listening going, what's up with John? And we see our, 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 our brothers and sisters in Christ going through trials, and it's so easy to stand to judgment. You just need a little more faith. You know what? You need to just shut it. What you need to be doing is not saying that to them and praying for them. They don't need to know how you would fix it or what God should do. And God needed another angel. And don't, don't give your platitudes. Pray. A servant speaks when they're spoken to and offers their opinion when they're asked. The ministry of presence. Jesus defended John. Those guys leave and Jesus looks at the crowd and they're all going, well, I knew John had, he was, yeah, he preaches strong and yeah, baptism, dove and everything. And oh, this is my son who I'm whipped. Yeah, John, okay, he could have been that, but he's, that guy's wacko. You know, I knew, I knew, I knew he's going to have a slip of faith. I just knew it. I could tell the minute I met him. We're so quick to make ourselves feel better at somebody else's expense. Calm down. Jesus immediately looks to the crowd and he says to them, what did you go out into the wilderness to see? What, is, what do you think somebody of faith is all about? A reed shaken by the wind? Oh, not John. What did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? All of you know that you came out to the wilderness that day to be baptized. What did you go out to see? A prophet? They're like, yeah, we did. We all came out there because we wanted a fresh start in life. And John, yeah, we, we came out to see a prophet. Yes, yes you did, Jesus says. But I say to you more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, and he defends John. He says, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. Malachi 3.1 was written for John, in case any of you think that he's weak. We're all going to have our lapses of faith. We're going to struggle. Be kind to one another. Encourage one another. Jesus says, for I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Heaven never, heaven never appraises us by a temporary mood swing or a momentary doubt. We've all had them. God still loves you. He still loves me. But Jesus makes a remarkable proclamation. He calls him a greater prophet than Abraham, Moses, David, Elijah, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel. Go on and on and on. He is greater than all of them. That's an enormous statement. And how can he declare such a thing? Because of all the people in the history of the world, John the Baptist, all these prophets, Abraham, Moses, Elijah, Jeremiah, David, all the way down the line, all of them longed to see the Messiah. But John said, there he is. There he is. He got to baptize him. He got to make straight the way of the Lord. He came in the spirit of Elijah. He laid this down. He said, I, I am prepared to serve this God. He saw what Moses and Abraham longed to see their whole life. But then he says something very interesting. He says, 
But he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. He who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than John. For among those born of women, there's not a greater prophet than John the Baptist, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. That means everyone in the room who professes Christ as their Savior is greater than John, and he's the greatest of all the prophets, which in Texan means all y'all. <laughs> now, you're not greater than John, and I'm not greater than John by degree, but by kind. You see, if a man is, is born only once, he'll die twice. But if a man is born twice, he'll die once. I'll explain. You're born from your mother. And then you die a physical death. Your body ceases to function. If you haven't been reconciled, reconnected to God because your sin separates you, you will face a second death which is separation from God for all eternity. Whatever God isn't, hell is. Whatever hell isn't, God is. I don't like to talk about hell, but the reason why I do is because Jesus talked about it more than anybody. He was a big barrier at the gates of hell, saying, don't do this. I, I, I died that you might live. My sacrifice upon the cross was to pay the penalty for your sin so that you're no longer on the slave block of sin. You've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. If you trust in me, you will live. And he lays this out to them. And if, if you're born once, you'll die twice. But if you're born twice, and this is what makes you a different kind and better than John the Baptist, if you're born twice, born twice, yes, to be born again, born of the spirit. There's no longer a physical temple where the Spirit of God resides. When you say, Lord, come into my life because you've been cleansed of all unrighteousness by his sacrifice upon the cross, you're reconciled to the Lord. He takes up residence in your life and you become a new creature in Christ. And you're born again. So he who is born twice will only die once. You'll have a, a physical death, but like John, you'll fall asleep and awaken in the image of, of, of the Lord. Now, that's a strange way to fall asleep with a, a hatchet to the back of the neck. But literally, you You awaken. In the presence of the Lord. And this, this is that picture. And then he turns to the rest of the crowd and he says to them, When all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God, having been baptized with the baptism of John. But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, not having been baptized by him. He said, all of you came out here and you realized that you, you, you had issues with the Lord and you needed to be reconciled. And so you washed in the water. John baptized you. You all knew, know that you were sinners. You missed the mark. You're not perfect. And you agreed. And you went down in that baptism of repentance. Except for you over there that I called a brood of vipers or that John called a brood of vipers. You didn't even think you needed to repent. You, you think you're better than everybody else. And John baptized under repentance. But today with the presence of the Lord, what makes you and I different and, and, and greater than John the Baptist, not by degree but by kind is the fact that we are not baptized into repentance we are redeemed we have been purchased off the slave block of sin and we've been set free from the law of sin and death by the spirit of life in Christ Jesus and I'm almost finished it comes to this place where they rejected repentance and thus they could never have redemption you have to admit 
and confess with your tongue. And then Jesus saves you. It takes me back to the time I was a lifeguard. I went out to save that guy. And all the friends on the shore were laughing at him because he was kind of heavy set and he was struggling. And I went out to go save him and I offered him the Peterson tube and he said, I'm not taking it because all the friends on the shore were laughing. And it was cold and I was shivering. I wasn't a Christian back then and I'm, I'm waiting for him because I can't leave him and I'm shivering and I'm, I'm angry. He's just irritating me. And I'm watching him. He's not going to make it. And we're just getting sucked out further. It's going to make my job even harder. And I don't want to wrestle with him. I'm just going to wait for him to get tired. And he, the water's churning because the two currents hit, and that's a rip current, you can tell. And all of a sudden, he, he aspirates some water. <laughs> he turns purple like Barney, and he's just coughing. He goes, I, I need the tube now, and I'm like floating on it. And I go, you, you say please. He's like, what do, you, what do you mean? I go, look, I knew you needed to be saved. I'm freezing. You're more concerned with all your friends on the shore, and your pride has kept us both freezing. Now say please, and I'll give you the tube. He goes, please. I go, fine. I hook him up. I bring him in. I wasn't a Christian. God doesn't do that to us. And when I brought him in, all of his friends started laughing at him. He grabbed his stuff. He says, you guys aren't my friends. He saved my life. And he walked away. Little did I know years later that that would be a picture that God would give me of how we reject salvation because we're so concerned about the laughing crowds and we're, we're, we're reeds blowing in the wind. When God is saying, I'm here to save you. Redemption. It's going to require that you walk by faith and not by sight. And, and, and he lays this out. He says, how are we going to liken this generation? You guys, you guys want God to dance to your tune. You go to the store and then you leave the kids in the play area of the mall. And they all play their games while you're shopping. And they do the, the dance one. They go, now you dance because we're playing a flute. And you go, oh, let's do a different game. Now we're going to do the morning game. And let's pretend that we're mourning. And you're not playing by our, this isn't how we, we don't want to play that way. We want you to do it our rules. And you're like, no. And God says, is this a generation? You, you want me to dance for you? You want me to mourn for you? You want me to do everything for you? You want me to, 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 to be a God that plays by your rules? I know what I'm doing, God says. It doesn't, it's hard to recognize. It's hard to see. John came neither eating nor drinking and they called him, they said he had a demon. And then I'm hanging out with tax collectors and sinners and you call me a wine-bibber and a friend of tax collectors. But with this beatitude, blessed is he who is not offended, who is not offended because of me. You don't take the bait. No scandal on in your life. You're not going to take the bait and you're not going to deny God. And then he concludes the passage by simply saying this. Wisdom is justified by all her children. Now, the reason why I wanted to close with that, John could have been the greatest priest ever. He could have had a whole direction for his life and what he wanted. He could have been in a lap of luxury. And he puts it all on the line, like the Apostle Paul, if there be no resurrection, be all men most pitied. And, he, and he, nothing's making sense, and he's, and, and he's getting ready to have his head cut off. And they don't even get back in time to tell him He's baffled. But would he come to understand that would be echoed in this room in 2019, thousands of years later, is that wisdom is justified by all her children. My mom and dad didn't want anything to do with Christianity. And I remember when I went into the ministry, they weren't happy about it. Not at all. 
I remember when we started to homeschool our kids back when homeschooling wasn't fun. And they're like, I'm sorry, you're doing what? And we go through the supermarket back when homeschooling was odd. We go through the supermarket and all the kids would be with us and the checkout attendant would be like, oh, you kids have a day off in school? And they would say in unison, no, we're homeschooled. And you just see the, the checker go, oh. And now in California, it's like, we got to homeschool. And my parents would say, you know, you need to give the kids, the, or you need to let, and they would just, and, and well, the Lord told us, that, and we're, and, and they would push us. Oh, and we get it in the church, too. Nothing like being pastor and why, you know, uh, Mr. and Mrs. Pastor, and everybody wants to tell you how to raise your kids. Well, that's all right. But we did what we did, and people go, well, I don't know why they do that. And the other one is you get the extra judgment. Like the pastor's kids are supposed to be better. No, our kids are like worse because they get an extra sin nature. <laughs> but, you know, you get to that place and I can say, and everyone had an opinion of what we we're supposed to do with Natasha. Oh, we got calls all the time. But you get to the end of the day. <laughs> shocking. Nobody fainted. You get to the end of the day. And the thing I love about it like the Apostle John said, I know no greater joy than to see my children walk with God. All my kids walk with the Lord. I'll tell you how that came about. I just, I'm not a perfect parent, neither is Michelle. Far from it. But we took all of our questions to God. We spent a lot of time in prayer. And he gave answers in times where it just didn't really make sense. Lord, everybody's laughing at us because we're doing this. Stay the course. Lord, we're being ridiculed. Stay the course. Lord, she's, she's not going to return. She won't have a phone. Stay the course. And you know, the Bible says children, they'll be led by a child. I, I think my parents came to Christ because of my kids. My in-laws love to be around my kids. And now I'm watching another generation. I'm, I'm seeing Oliver and Liberty growing up in the admonition of the Lord. And it's just profound. And there are times where I haven't trusted him and I've doubted him and I've struggled, but I haven't taken the bait. And we conclude with these last two thoughts. And this is a challenge to all of us this morning. And I'd leave you with this. Two challenges today. For those who doubt and question God, he doesn't frown on this. It's okay. Just make sure you take your questions to him, okay? Refuse to be offended. Don't take the bait. And then two, live the philosophy that wisdom is justified by our children. And I just put, try it out. You got a better way? Because we've tried in California to remove God from the equation, and we're going to do something other than the, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Take God out of the equation. We're going to, we're, computers are going to, we're, we're, no, knowledge. We, oh, no, we're going to do early start. No, we're going to do STEM. No, we're going to, we're watching our secondary school systems and our schools decline. We lead in poverty. Somewhere along the lines, I think people are going to start to just, you know what, this isn't working, let's try it out. Try it out. I can tell you, I've never been offended by him.
I've doubted him. I've struggled with him. But I've never taken the bait and denied him. And even when I don't understand him, whenever I've trusted him, he's always worked it together for good. And there are still... There's still some areas I'm waiting for an answer on. But I know... I know that he's got it worked out. And so, for all of you born of women, especially you moms, wisdom is proven by your children. Don't take the bait, stay the course. He's a good God. He's immutable. He doesn't change. His nature is such that he who began a good work is faithful to complete it. And we're going to get through this together. And that's the strength of a mom and a dad. Happy Mother's Day. Amen.